Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. So today's show is about miracles, and most of us commonly think of miracles as breaches of some natural order, violations of the laws of science. And many people think that miracles do not exist because they cannot exist. And this is part and parcel of an argument made by one of the greatest thinkers of all time, and this is the 18th century uh, British philosopher David Hume, who argued that if you balance the evidence for the laws of nature against the evidence for miracles, the laws of nature win, therefore miracles cannot exist. Uh, but Today, on this show, we're going to find out whether that is true or not, partly because of David Hume's arguments and the overwhelming power of modern science, which is based upon materialism. The topic of miracles has largely been relegated to religion, the paranormal, and the fringes of modern culture. But today we're going to be discussing one question. Do miracles exist or not? And I'm happy to say that with us today is author Michael Grosso, who has just published a fascinating new book on this very topic. The title of the book is Smile of the Universe, Miracles in an Age of Disbelief. And so today we're going to be probing this question. Uh, and Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And as I said in the beginning, on these shows, I always read or at least review the, the book of the, of the um, guest. And I was very happy to, to get this book uh, from Michael's publicist and in thinking about it, uh, I was impressed by the scholarly nature of the book, and that is partly because uh, Michael here has a PhD in philosophy from Columbia University, an MA in classical Greek. He's taught humanities and philosophy at a number of places, including City University of New York, John F. Kennedy University, Marymount, Manhattan College and New Jersey City University. He's the author of about 10 books, including Experiencing the Next World Now, The Millennium Myth, Love and Death at the End of Time, and a number of other fascinating um, books in this area. He lives in Charlottesville and has done work for the University of Virginia and is currently a director of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. So let's 
let's start at the beginning here, Michael. What led you to write a book on miracles? Well, uh, I can answer that easily. First of all, my own experiences. I have had experiences that uh, qualify as miracles in the way I determine and define the term. Uh, but also I had a professional interest being a philosopher, a teacher of philosophy uh, all these years. Uh, I uh, naturally would come up against the question of the nature of mind. Uh, it's a fundamental issue in classical philosophy and an ongoing conversation amongst philosophers. And uh, why that's so important is because so-called miracles, the way I define them, uh, simply uh, not only the astonishing or subjective side of a miracle, which is easy to deal with, but in my sense, the way I define the term, a miracle is, is an event that is uh, currently beyond uh, the understanding of mainstream science. And uh, I... Uh, have uh, experienced and studied reports of other people's experiences of a huge variety of uh, phenomena that, uh, in my judgment, qualify as miracles in, in, the, in the strong latter sense. I'm interested in the subjective sense, the sort of the poetic dimension of miracles. It would be foolish to neglect them, but uh, as a philosopher and as a thinker, I am crucially intrigued by the fact that uh, there are wide ranges of human experience that uh, are not explicable at present. I don't rule out the possibility that uh, one day science will evolve. In fact, I'm confident it will uh, in a way that encompasses, that is in a position to encompass uh, mental phenomena as well as uh, the really shocking and extraordinary uh, phenomena that uh, science is, uh, as we know, it is quite out of the, uh, unable to account for. And I could give some examples uh, just to get the conversation immediately vivid. Take something like uh, levitation. I think most people would admit this is uh, certainly an unusual and rare thing. Others will deny it's ever occurred. I have witnessed it. Uh, I have talked to people who have witnessed levitations, and above all, I've read extensively in the literature, and uh, unless I'm going to have to dismiss all historical literature, I have to accept uh, well-founded reports of uh, uh, these phenomena. In particular, right now, I'm speaking about levitation. Okay, Okay. so just a second here. Okay, so, sure. so here, here's, you know... When you approach topics like this, there's always a mindset you got to have. I mean, I think that um, the way that the modern mind approaches miracles is that it's difficult to approach the topic other than through the lens of materialism. Mm. And, and by that, I mean, and, and you know, you have um, a good description of materialism in your book, uh, but and we talk about that a lot in the show. But essentially, it's it's the belief that uh, all human life, the entire universe, is made of mindless particles, impersonal forces with no purpose or goal, 
and that everything could be explained by by matter in motion. But I, it, but what what I think is a health healthy perspective that might help is is to give miracles the chance of being real. And it, it's, there was something uh, in your book you quoted from St. Augustine that I wrote down I thought was very apropos to this topic, which is, the quote is, miracles happen not in opposition to nature, but in opposition to what we know of nature. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, and considering, now how, how long ago was that? I mean, I mean, right. you wrote that quite a while ago, <laughs> so, right? So, uh, so you know, he he was on to something, and I think that that's something we all struggle with. I mean, even you know, I I have essentially uh, been I'm I'm going to say a idealist in the uh, in the philosopher realm, oh, for uh, for my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to to um, you know, I have a degree in philosophy, so that's so that so. The um, idealists always thought I always thought they were more correct than the materialistic philosophers, but still, we we, we tend to view things through this lens. Now, going to my point here, I like to have an open mind mm-hmm. and think about well, what happens if they are true, and even even going a step further and saying. What happens if they're all true? I mean, mm-hmm. there, there has to be some kind of explanation. And uh, on this issue of, of levitation, which I think is really cool, because let's face it, there is no um, power force in science's arsenal, as we know it, that, that would allow for levitation, right? It's just, if you, if you tell uh, one of the modern scientists... Um, such as Lawrence Krauss, for example, or Sean Carroll, the author of these best-selling books. Oh, by the way, I saw somebody levitate the other day. Mm-hmm. They're going to hang the phone up on you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say you 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 are you've lost your mind. Uh-huh. So so let's let's talk about this for a second. And I I want to focus on on the best evidence. You know, ha- have you yourself seen somebody levitate? Well, to begin with, that's one reason why I got more interested in the subject, even right. after having read about it. Right. But yes, I did. Uh, I was teaching a, cor- a course with a, a colleague of mine on human development. We were exploring different ways that human beings uh, have the potential to evolve and grow as human beings. And both mental and physical, we talked about all kinds of things that uh, were, I suppose, that went beyond the limits of ordinary accepted science. And the topic of levitation came up. And one of my students pointed out that when she was a kid, uh, they would play games called light as a feather. Oddly enough, if you look this up on the internet, you'll find a lot of interesting information. And I had never heard of it, but what it consisted of was basically uh, children getting together, putting their hands on a chosen child and doing something like breathing or chanting or singing together and then saying lift and then being able to inexplicably or effortlessly lift the, uh, the child. Now, I've never watched kids doing it. But my student said, well, why don't we try it here in class? And I thought that's a totally crazy idea, but why not? (laughs) We've got nothing to lose. We've been meditating together and all that. 
uh, chanting and trying different uh, sort of group-oriented activities. So to make a long story short, because I could, the details, I could spell it out too long, but to make a long story short, I chose the heaviest person, male, in the classroom, who happened to weigh roughly about 200 pounds, an ex-Marine, sat him down in a chair and selected four of the young ladies who struck me as the least likely to be uh, a, a closet uh, uh, weightlifters. And uh, I had them place their two fingers face up underneath the knees and underneath the elbows. And we went through our little routine of uh, chanting together and breathing together, maybe uh, no more than a minute, I would say, because we had been doing it all along. And then innocently, I said, lift. And I had no expectation that anything was going to happen. But uh, there in front of an entire class and a second professor who was team teaching the course with me, Howard Shafter was his name, is his name, uh, up goes the, this uh, rather heavy, massive uh, ex-Marine into the air. And, and I could see that the girls were not straining. They were not even trying. They couldn't have lifted him even if they, even if they were just trying yeah. to lift him. And uh, they were touching him the way you touch a, a marker in a Ouija board, if you've yeah. had that experience. You yeah. touch it and it moves. There's an unconscious force acting through the body. Well, up he went as far as their hands could reach. And, and then he came down slowly. I would have thought from that height, that maybe let's say at least uh, six feet uh, that he was in the air, coming down should have broken him maybe broken an arm or something because he's heavy and you yeah. fall quickly. He came down gently just as in a poltergeist phenomenon. These objects that float around in poltergeist rarely break. Right. Sometimes they do. Other times they just gently move around contrary to nature. So there it was. Uh, I witnessed this with my, and I could never forget something like this. I could still re recall the guys look in his face so that's what led me to do the research. Uh, and I quickly discovered that there was a all-time star levitator in the history of the subject by the name of Joseph of Copertino, uh, who lived in the 17th century, a very unusual mystic who uh, was devoted to the most extreme uh, self-denial, all the kinds of things that uh, mystics and uh, yogis do, self-deprivation, physical fasting, uh, meditating hours and hours and hours. And he simply was an irrepressible levitator to such an extent that he was permanently isolated from the rest of the community because wherever he was at, at a moment's notice, he could he might just take off into the air, something that inspires him, and all uh, normal life would be shattered uh, for that time. So they had to respect the guy, but they put him in a corner, so to speak, didn't allow him to uh, dine with people, sing with people. But nevertheless, he continued to acquire uh, a, uh, a reputation, not only of a master uh, levitator and other miracle producer, but as a profoundly uh, a wise and insightful uh, man who had a knack for precognition that was repeatedly reported and, do and has been very, very well documented. So from there, I went to the other 
still staying within a Catholic tradition. The Catholic tradition is, uh, is good for people of a scientific bent of mind because of the tradition of uh, legalism, the idea of taking notes and, and, and uh, taking, uh, uh, taking down uh, evidence uh, under oath that such and such happened. So it turns out the records show us 150 different cases of different individuals ranging from popes and down to surgeons and ordinary everyday people who swore they witnessed Joseph uh, levitate. And that's only a fraction of the people who probably did see him because he would do these things in public uh, while saying mass, while marching around during a, a celebration uh, and it would spontaneously happen amongst crowds of people. So the actual number of individuals that probably witnessed him levitate over the 35-year career that he had as a priest uh, must have been at least in, in the small thousands, at least. Yeah, I, I saw that. Uh, I saw that you have, a, you have a book entitled The Man Who Could Fly, St. Joseph of, of Copertino. Mm-hmm. And the mystery of levitation, and I and I think that uh, it's really a fascinating story. I've I've heard of him, and you give a really a really uh, a neat account of him in your book. But I think that your classroom uh, experience really says something. Now, uh, on the personal front, I always tell people that I've reached my my current uh, quasi radical views, which parenthetically, are becoming less radical with time, uh, considering the, the folks who um, I have on the show and who uh, think alike. Um, I have had, I, I myself had a levitation experience. Oh, wow. It's yeah. sort of like when you, when you do it, when it happens to you, and everybody that has these experiences, and I'm not just talking about levitation, I'm talking about all sorts of epiphanies and mm-hmm. um you know, spiritual experiences, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, you can't talk somebody out of it. You can't say, oh, no, you really did not see uh, the face of the Virgin Mary in the sky, or you really didn't, uh, you know, uh, read this person's mind or have a precognitive dream of somebody dying in a car accident. You know, when, when you have those experiences, um there is prop there is nothing at more valid and so i myself uh, had that experience and and so you know to me it's it's um we are into a black swan territory and mm-hmm. maybe maybe i want to move to this topic for a moment before we get uh, uh sp- specific again which is the black swan i always thought that um all it takes is one um verified paranormal event to prove that they're possible or, or to prove uh, conversely that the quote unquote laws of nature as interpreted by modern science do not hold uh, absolutely across time and space. Uh, don't you think we were far past the black swan? In other words, isn't the evidence overwhelming that the laws of nature do allow for these things to occur? Well, absolutely. And, and the, the problem, I think, is the, the very success of science, modern science since the 17th century, has been a, a primarily of a physical nature. And it is awesome, the things that uh, science, modern 
physicalistic science have achieved, from sending people to the moon to uh, in, in improving uh, medical health in incredible ways, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But that leaves out the whole realm of experience that people have that are that is, that are probably that are uh, mainly mind driven. Uh, it leaves out, so to speak, half of the dimensionality of the human being, the, the mental uh, experiences. And uh, so it turns out, for example, that there, there's no absolute certainty about this, but it does seem that uh, most of the unusual extra physical baffling phenomena take place not when you're in an ordinary everyday state of mind, but in extreme or varied or altered states of consciousness. And as I'm sure you know, there's a re recrudescence nowadays of interest in altered states. We have Michael Pollan writing about LSD and, and gloriously almost, uh, I don't know, uh, spiritualistic terms. Yeah. Uh, and lots of other things are happening that are beginning to reinstate uh, the validity of uh, uh, a whole wide range of altered states of consciousness. Within medicine itself, I'd like to say this, that we have really a, a, a sort of a flaming mystery right in the face of physicalistic medicine, day in and day out, uh, by, by virtue of the placebo phenomenon. I mean, we all know about placebo, but the, if you study the history and the phenomenology and the scope of this phenomenon, whereby Merely belief and attitude can make an extraordinary difference in, in, in healing physical conditions. It's impossible to, to underrate uh, just through that one particular vehicle of, of the placebo, the role of the mind uh, in, in its capacity to act on the body. Uh, so it's a question of paying attention, taking the time out, to look at these uh, things. And yes, as far as levitation, uh, there, it, it's my, one person told me, well, this is a vanishingly small phenomenon. It's not, it's not at all. Uh, there are reports today, I have one person in the book who was traveling in Spain with a, a Swedish girlfriend of hers who never had heard of uh, levitation and two of them went into a Spanish church, was empty, and there was a nun praying at, at, uh, up in front. And they witnessed this nun float up into the air. <laughs> My friend told me that her, uh, that her Swedish uh, pal fainted on the spot. She, she, it was so shocking. Uh, whereas the, the woman that I, told me the story was more familiar with these phenomena and just gaped in awe. So yes, I, the, the, the evidence is there. The, the problem, as David Hume, you mentioned David Hume, uh, Hume wrote a marvelous essay on miracles, which scientists still take seriously as if it's an argument against miracles. It's, it's completely worthless. But what he does in that argument, in that essay, he gives all the evidence for the reality of uh, all kinds of incredible phenomena that took place uh, at, at the cemetery of Medar. This is a the whole story there of a bunch of strange things that were taking place at the time that uh, uh, David Hume was uh, flourishing. He knew all of this material. He writes about it. 
He admits that the witnesses are impeccable. He admits that the enemies of the phenomena admit the phenomena took place. But he concludes it just can't be because he says so. These things yeah. just are impossible. Why does he think they're impossible? He thinks they're inconsistent with the laws of nature. It doesn't occur to him that, A, we don't understand all the laws of nature yet, and he fails to grasp the possibility that the mind itself could be a causal agent producing uh, various kinds of phenomena. So, yeah, I would agree. The uh, the, the evidence is there, and what's lacking is the interest, the courage, and the curiosity, and the imagination uh, to uh, open this up on a wide basis and see where this whole realm of rejected but very real phenomena could lead us if yeah, we use them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it's sort of, um, I, I uh, struggle with this very topic, um, which is sort of uh, the authoritativeness uh, of, of modern materialistic science and the power of science and 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 the and and how when we use the word science, we we almost reflexively uh, equate science with materialism. Mm, when right. when when the word science is to know, I think the I think the root of that word is to know or knowledge, something. Mm-hmm. Like that. And so, it really is. It really is a, a situation. It's almost a marketing issue. Is as, as if uh, materialists have sold the sold science as being only materialism uh when you when you really and you know i have i have a book on this very topic the collapse of materialism mm. and um when you when you get into the assumption of materialism there there are a couple very candid descriptions uh, of why sciences make the assumption and one of them i think is by ernst meyer the harvard biologist uh, mm the neo-Darwinian, who said that science treats nature as if it was purely materialistic. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to say, to make that assumption, the as if assumption, and to see how far it goes. But it's another thing to conclude that that everything has to be explained in materialistic terms. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's going on is that science, I believe, is at the end road, materialism at the end road, um, I, I think that they they hide their own mir- miracles in, in in equations and esoteric terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, heaven forbid! What the hell? I'm mean, excuse my French. What the heck is <laughs> is the Big Bang? Isn't right. that a materialization of matter out of nothing? Mm. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, if that isn't a miracle, I don't think there is one. Uh, and then, and I, I could go on and on. Dark matter. Right. right. Dark matter, which is holding the universe together, nobody knows what what that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we could it, it just it's it's amazing to me that that materialism hides their miracles in, in equations where uh, religion and parapsychology sort of trots them out, and and they become quote unquote miracles by contrasting with with the laws of nature. So. Any in any event, I, I want to get your and I, I it could be levitation, but I, I want to understand from you 
and you've, you've put a lot of research into this. And uh, folks, if you want to read a book about miracles, this is the one. It's very well done. Uh, Smile of the Universe. Which miracle do you think is most authentic? Or put differently, which one do you think would be easiest for science to accept? Uh, hmm. Uh, what, what was the le- is for science okay. to, 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 to 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 accept? I mean, of all, of accept. All- okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I, I have a, I have an answer to your question immediately, and and it may sound like a joke, but it's not. Uh, the most obvious uh, miracle and the most compelling miracle, according to the definition uh, that we're working with, or at least I'm working with, is the most basic feature of every human being's life and existence, namely our consciousness. You must know that of all uh, phenomena, even the most hard, uh, hardly driven reductive materialists have admitted the fact that consciousness itself, which is the only thing that distinguishes us from (laughs) non-being, Uh, is completely inexplicable. Uh, We know that our minds and our conscious life is uh, entangled with our brain life. There's no question about that. Hit me over the head, uh, you know, with a hammer or something, I'm going to lose consciousness. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is that you cannot, and and there is no scientist alive uh, who will deny this, that we cannot explain, reduce or interpret the reality of our mental life, our conscious life, uh, as strictly, clearly, and unequivocally deriving from the physical uh, and chemical processes of our brains. So, and and that's not even a controversial statement. I could trot out a hundred quotes, even from some of the more notorious uh, reductionists. They say, oh yeah, we'll admit that we can't figure that one out. That's a huge starting point. Yeah. Uh, so, in the whole realm, dreams, again, totally familiar. Nobody is, I mean, we can describe what part of the brain may be active or inactive in the brain uh, when a dream is come, taking place. But the idea that we can conjure out of the, our material brains narratives like full-blown technicolor stories, as it were, that unfold transiently, ad- admittedly, but recurrently, uh, is itself a uh, completely baffling. Uh, we don't even know why we dream. We don't know why we sleep. We don't know the origins of life. And we don't, as you uh, pointed out, I mean, we can describe a lot of processes brilliantly, that's for sure, but the origins are something else. Nor, as you pointed out, uh, do we know why to put it the way the philosophers like to do it, why something rather than nothing exists? That was Leibniz. Why does something rather than nothing exist? Well, we've got this great theory that takes us back through mathematical inference uh, to the Big Bang. But as you say, before that, what? We're blank. Now, I'm not just reveling in mystery for its own sake. Uh, What I'm trying to say is that we're immersed in uncertainty and in mystery alongside of the fact that as a species, we've evolved enormously and acquired fascinating, profound uh, knowledge about many, many things. Yeah, there's, yeah, 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 there's a lot there. And, I, and 
you, uh, you know, you, you sort of triggered when you mentioned consciousness and it's, it's a really interesting topic because you think about it, it's a miracle going either direction. It, it's a miracle if consciousness arose out of the gray matter of the brain, which is, which is really what the leading scientific theory is. And as you point out, no one's really figured out how that's even possible. Uh, I think that's the hard problem of consciousness more mm-hmm. or less. And really, it really if, if, if you read all the books and all the best papers, and there's one by David Chalmers, and mm-hmm. I think it's called The Hard Problem of Consciousness, that right. title is. But if you, read, if you read everything on that topic, folks, all you, all you wind up with is a bunch of speculation. There's mm-hmm. absolutely nothing nothing that uh, links uh, gray matter with consciousness. So it's a miracle going that way. If, if matter arose from consciousness, which happens to be my, my opinion, um, then that's a miracle too. It's, mm. it's a miracle. It's a miracle going either direction. And right. so, and as I said before, it's, it's amazing to me the way probably the person on the street, on the street uh, has this perception that materialistic science has it all figured out because, mm-hmm. because we send men to the, to the moon, rovers to Mars. We, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we probe the distant galaxies, you know, tunnel into the earth, every, all this stuff. But it really is a dirty, a dirty secret of science that they really don't understand the universe. And, um, and, and partly I think it's because they're trying to define something that cannot be captured purely by a particle or materialistic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so that leads to, you know, I think a refreshing perspective on, on miracles. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like you to, the, this topic of, ma- of, of materialization while we're on a topic, while we're using the term materialistic and I've been using it a lot, but, <laughs> but uh what what is materialization? Because I think this is a really a cool uh, cool topic. You have some examples in your book. Can you just describe what that is? Well, yeah, that, that's pretty shocking stuff. And I, I sort of discovered this kind of late, I suppose. Uh, I've been wandering about uh, around the, the universe of um, of anomalies, you know, on and off for for quite some time. But uh, recently, in fact, while I was writing my book on uh, on miracles, I discovered, um, well, first of all, I, I saw uh, a back in 19, I think it was uh, 95, um, in the 90s were an exciting year for miracles. I, I had watched on television a report about a statue of St. Irene in, a, uh, in an Orthodox Greek church in Astoria that was uh, weeping. Now, I had heard about weeping statues and knew all about weeping and bleeding statues. So I went uh, to Astoria. I was living in Manhattan, and uh, so Astoria was just a borough over. I got online, I watched, uh, and I confronted this statue, and sure enough, I and everyone else could see uh, uh, large tears, uh, uh, tear-like, watery uh, uh, substances being emitted from the eyes of this statue. Uh, later on, it was proven, or in the past it was proven, and later again it was proven that these were real tears. 
But even if they weren't real tears and just water was being materialized, you still have the problem. So that's a fascinating idea. And, and, and so I, I, as it turned out, I looked up and found that in the 1990s, there, were, there was a rash of phenomena associated with statues or paintings of mainly the Madonna, the figure of the Madonna, that um, were reported to either be bleeding or, or, to, be, or to be weeping. Uh, case after case, I have a section in my book where I list some of these, not in detail, because every story is a detailed drama, really, if you think about it. Uh, and, and if you read about it, it, it involves people's lives being completely uh, uh, overturned in, in terms of uh, maybe their health or just their belief systems. So uh, what I find fascinating, by the way, W.B. Yeats was interested in, a, in the, the famous uh, Irish poet with a fellow psychical researcher uh, has given a report and noted the fact that he witnessed a, uh, a priest statue uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, uh, bleeding and so forth. So this, this, uh, the, 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 the accounts of these phenomena go back at least to the 11th century, uh, Italy and Germany. And I cover some of that material in, in the book. So materialization is, uh, is surely a symbolic sort of phenomenon that is so contrary to common sense that it does really induce one uh, to be tempted to, to use a big potent word like, uh, like miracle. And I would also say, for, as for types of materialization, uh, my favorite case is the case of uh, Pierre de Ruda uh, back in the 19th century again, uh, or early 20th century, uh, this was a man who had heard of the healings that were taking place at Lourdes, and he had broken his, uh, Pierre had broken his leg, uh, and for eight years, he was unable to heal it. He was taken care of by an estate owner who took him and his family on and sort of allowed them to live up for nothing because the man was uh, injured. The doctors, the, the man who did this, uh, who helped support Pierre's eight years of misery, got doctors from all over the place to help him heal his uh, suppurating, infected, gangrenous leg, which never did. The bones were broken. It was a horror. Finally, after eight years, uh, Pierre de Ruda got permission to go to Lourdes, and he was... Uh, uh, supported in this venture. He went with his wife, you know, on a cane, helped along. To make, again, the long story short, when he got to Ustaka, which is just outside Lourdes, and he stopped in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary and said a brief prayer. And his brief prayer was simply, help me so that I can work again and take care of my family. That was all he was asking for. And Instantaneously, uh, I know this is going to sound weird, but the, the documentation is there is so solid that you can't believe how solid it is. He gets up and he notices he, so, he suddenly stands up. And inst instantly, the, 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 the part of his leg that was completely shattered, the bone was materialized. 
When he died, by the way, fast forward, and they examined his leg, they could see the white, newly uh, materialized bone jammed right into the older bone, and you can see the difference of the color. I've seen photographs of it. Uh, for the rest of his life, he was in perfect health. Now, that is what I call materialization of a kind that um, is of great interest. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot. In, I mean, there's a lot uh, of similarities between that and instantaneous healing, but uh, severe cases or serious cases of, of the placebo effect Mm-hmm. That really interests me uh, are are where there's physical changes in the body. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one thing to, you know, sort of cure a rash or something, right. But, right. but when when broken bones are fixed, or when cancer, like, you know, cancerous tumor is healed, mm-hmm. you know, it become it becomes sort of uh, sensationalistic a little bit, mm-hmm. but but it it really shows a similarity across this area and i and i myself sort of summarize it in two categories which is the mind's effect on the body or the connection between mind and body and then the mind's connection to the physical world uh mm-hmm. it's like uh would be uh mind over physical world mm-hmm. which which leads us as you know we're, as we're going through this conversation which leads to what does it all mean and where the where does this whole topic of sort of broadening or deepening the authenticity of miracles what is it you know is it just a passing interest or, or does it tell us something about our future? And I, I'd like you to talk about this uh, a little bit, um, Michael, with regard to where you see this heading. Because I know that in your book you you address this, and I think this is where things get get really interesting. I mean, what 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 is the takeaway from the reality of miracles? Well, that's of course a, a central question, and for me. Uh, and this is my venture into speculation. I, as I try to put together all of the different kinds of phenomena, the mental, I mean, the, let's say the physical miracles, the biological miracles, and the psychological miracles. And when I line them up uh, and try to combine them into a single image, what I get is an image of the possible next stage of human evolution. It's the only way that I can think of it. Uh, I, of course, don't know why we have these abilities, as I don't know why we exist at all in the first place. I mean, we're granted that. But it does seem to me that it's plausible to imagine that human beings have, are still evolving and that there are seeds of potentiality uh, latent and potentially alive in all of us. Uh, And these seeds of a future, more evolved version of the human species seem to emit themselves, manifest themselves piecemeal, bits and pieces, now and then, little 
surprises here and there. Certain circumstances seem to facilitate them, and that's important to study those circumstances. But the question arises, is there or will there ever be circumstances or in due course will it happen, happen that these potentialities begin to unroll and unfold and manifest in a coherent way across the board of the whole species? And uh, I don't, I, this is a, obviously a brand new realm of thought, but I'm forced to speculate on this possibility to, ask, to answer your question. You know, why do we have these abilities? A, a second possibility, a second implication that one might derive from the existence of all these latent and occasionally manifest phenomena is that they are telling us or indications of or signs of the fact that we are going to survive our bodily death and carry on in a new, on a new plane of existence. Now, as you all know, as we all know, it's been a belief of human beings since the get-go that there's some kind of an afterlife. Again, with the modern rise of modern science and the dominance of materialism, that may seem uh, old-fashioned and uh, uh, unthinkable. But as a matter of fact, in my quest for the data on miracles, I've studied the evidence for life after death. And I'll say two things very quickly. There's lots of it. It may not be absolutely compelling for the simple reason that there are arguments against survival that we can draw upon that are based on the nature of our psychic abilities. So we're, we're so talented psychically, it just might be possible that we unconsciously conjure up apparitions of dead people that can talk to us or even pass on information that we didn't know in order to convince ourselves that there's life after death. I'm not altogether uh, uh, sweet on that theory. It makes our entire psychic life as a species a big con job, a self con job. I kind of doubt that's the case, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, I think that the uh, concept of life after, life after death a tough one i mean there i think that the topic of near-death experiences is is a set to me is overwhelming and mm -hmm. you know be and that's sort of used to bridge the life after death um concept but you know there's there's some mysteries that we may never solve but i think that you know when um when Proof of Heaven was published, Eben Alexander, I mm -hmm. mean, the fact that he, he was a, you know, a neurologist, a surgeon, and he himself had a near-death experience. I mean, I think that really helped broaden the acceptance of, of near-death experiences. How, you know, leaving aside the fact that I think that orthodox materialism still rejects the concept, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, but it's, it's a, it's a, um, I think that it is, and it's um, uplifting to to hear that there is a stage of evolution that perhaps awaits us. It it sort of maps what uh, Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin said in *The Phenomenon of Man*, mm -hmm. which, is, which is a book that everyone's got to read because in that book 
it's it's got some wild sections to it but he he goes he just takes darwin he just doesn't stop at you know at mortal man he he goes into uniting consciousness um in that mm-hmm. book uh you know the the uh the the far reaches of evolution and that that i think um sort of gives some promise and it also uh offers very powerful uh, pro- or, or, or a very powerful argument that science needs to be attentive to this, because if the ultimate goal of science, you know, is is to understand the world, to master the world, because I always think that that is the goal of science, which is to master the world. That's all, that otherwise what otherwise it's just academic knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, we we research all these, for example, and the best example is is. Uh, our medical cures and and um, and life extension drugs and cures. I mean, if if science come you know came out with a drug to make people live longer, it'd be the best selling drug. I mean, it's huh. it, it's mastering our lives. And mm-hmm. I think if science doesn't pay attention to the reality of miracles and what it says about the power of of the mind then they are there. I think that they are um, selling ourselves short. I, I don't want to forget to, uh, to at least discuss a little bit here, the concept of mind at large, because that does play a big part in your, in your book. And I think helps bring things together. So first of all, what is mind at large? Well, uh, it's simply uh, the evidence if we look carefully and closely, seems to suggest not only that we have minds that are irreducibly what they are and cannot be reduced to uh, physical, the, the physical substrate, but rather that the mind uses the physical substrate to express itself. Not only is that uh, true, but um, our minds are not merely... Uh, uh, aspects of our personal uh, physiology, but rather there are indications of all sorts, philosophical arguments and uh, empirical facts that suggest that our minds are connected to a much larger mind. Take the most obvious sort of elementary uh, reflection on telepathy. If telepathy is a fact of nature, uh, then it seems that in principle, we could say that all of our minds are at least in some way connected. It doesn't follow I can read your mind automatically, but there's a connection, there's a doorway. Uh, you know, people fear the idea of telepathy because it may seem that there's a loss of privacy, but that doesn't necessarily follow. But that there is a connection to an opening up across mind uh, seems to be a proven fact. So that's an el- one elementary ar- argument. Then if you look at all the other features of the paranormal mind, uh, see clairvoyance. Clairvoyance in, in, uh, implies that our minds are cognit- potentially capable of cognizing not just our own bodies, but extra beyond our sensory range uh, that we can perceive uh, the, the world of of space, the spatial universe around us through a clairvoyance with things like precognition and retro 
cognition, not only is space uh, transcended, but so is time. Uh, I myself, uh, since we're talking about miracles and strange phenomena, I have had several very striking precognitive experiences, which leave no doubt in my mind uh, that precognition is a fact. And frankly, I have no idea of how to explain it. It's quite baffling. So uh, then there are the experiences that people have in the near-death experience of, of an expanded consciousness. There are all kinds of factual and philosophical reasons, which I won't go into because it's too sort of complicated and abstract, that enable us to posit, call it, if you like, to be careful, an, an hypothesis of a greater mind, a transpersonal mind, uh, a supermind. Um, mind at large is a phrase I borrowed from Aldous Huxley. Uh, when he uh, started exploring psychedelic drugs, his mind opened up to such an extent he realized that uh, uh, he needed to, a new terminology to describe his own experience. So that would be uh, uh, just some rough remarks about that. And, and what that expanded concept of mind does, it helps us understand religion a little bit more because religion and yoga and all of the uh, human traditions that assume the existence of, uh, of a god, of a guardian angel, of some transcendent spiritual entity. But I believe that we have enough strictly empirical factual evidence that allows us to infer the reality of a greater mind. And that uh, yeah, changes I, the whole picture. Yeah, and I think that you, you, did a, you just did a, a very nice job of summarizing a lot of the evidence for the mind at large. And and for what it's worth, I think the mind at large, that description is, is, a, is a very nice neutral term. You know, the, uh, there's the cosmic consciousness. Mm -hmm. There is um, the one mind. There is the source. There's God. There's all sorts of terms with increasingly more baggage. Uh, because you know a lot of folks say well is this is this the is this the biblical god and it could be it, to, it in my opinion it could be but i i am in, in coming to the end of our show here which which went pretty fast um i am encouraged by the last chapter uh you 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 call your last chapter beyond science and religion in which you know this show is called conversations beyond science and religion and i think at the end of the day we have to go beyond science and religion in order to find a place for mind at large in our modern culture. And that means expand what science means. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not dispensing with science. It's not dispensing with religion. It's going beyond them mm -hmm. so that we could um, provide a deeper explanation in my opinion, yeah. or the miracles of religion and the and the reason for religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, this is this is a a uh, very um, fascinating topic. We've quickly come to the end, as I've said. And and mm -hmm. Michael, if you have any closing comments, um, go ahead uh, for the listener here. I've already um, mentioned 
that your book, Smile of the Universe, is is a really good read. I highly recommend it. But if you, you want to um, tell the listeners anything else before we close things up here, go ahead. Well, I'd just like to say that uh, we're in a very grim period of our history. And uh, just coincidentally, my book on miracles has come out at a time when so many people tell me, gee, I could use a miracle. Yeah. And, and, and so I like to think that this uh, a book uh, is like a handbook for uh, a potential, our potential lives once we get over this. In other words, uh, if, if the miraculous dimension of reality uh, is a valid one, uh, we're all going to be in better shape if, if, uh, in, in, in due course, if we pay attention. So I'm, I'm uh, trying to tell a, a story. Uh, at the same time, I have a clear eye and an open eye for the grim, dark story that's unfolding. But to compensate for that, I feel the need to emphasize uh, a positive story uh, a counter story that uh, represents a latent potential within us all to overcome the worst of, uh, of problems. That's at any rate, my optimistic take on my own research. Yeah. And I, th- I think, I think that is a, a very good point. And, and when things are darkest, it's always good to um, look out and, and realize and, and appreciate the miracle uh, of life itself. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you, Michael. It's been good talking to you, and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.